We all have memories intertwined with food from our earliest of days to the food that we reach for in heartbreak, celebration or connection. Today's guest explores how food can be a way back to ourselves. I'm Ali Hill and welcome to Standout Life, a podcast dedicated to exploring what does it take to live boldly amongst the busyness and sometimes the heartbreak of our world. Charlotte Reed grew up in country New South Wales and her earliest memory of food was cooking jam drops with her grandma. Her husband also introduced her to the love of cooking, something that she continued after she ended her marriage at the start of the pandemic. Sharing her open and real stories of love, loss and finding herself again in her book Heartbake, this is a bittersweet memoir with some really tough and heartwarming moments. In this real and raw conversation, Charlotte shares what it's like growing up with parents navigating mental illness, the experience of ending a marriage and being single in an apartment only days before Sydney went into its first lockdown, how tough that was, and the road back to finding herself. Food and recipes are a core part of Charlotte's stories. And you need to buy a copy of Heartbake for the brownie recipe alone. I'm not a cook, but I have cooked these twice and they are amazing. Also, the burnt fast cheesecake recipe is pretty incredible too. Weaving together sweet moments with tough moments, loss and love, a single boiled egg to cooking four-course dinner parties at her supper club. Soak up the wisdom and the words from the beautiful Charlotte Reed. Charlotte, such a delight to be chatting with you. Thank you so much for having me. We all have memories that are intertwined with food from all different areas. What are some of your earliest memories when it comes to food? Ooh, I think one of the strongest ones is probably being in the kitchen with my nanny making jam drops to the point where even now I can beat butter and sugar together and taste it and be on her kitchen counter. She always likes to say I put more dough in my mouth than I did into the cookies though, which is still true. But there's memories of, you know, there could be good and bad. Like I grew up with sort of separate households. My mum and dad weren't together and my dad's family wouldn't eat the things that we would eat. So like I hate mayonnaise or any condiments really. And I'd go and have to like eat a potato salad at his house covered in mayonnaise. And it was one of the most traumatic things I could have ever eaten. You know, it's just those sorts of things. But even as an adult, like it's funny how you can have kind of bugbears that you carry through, but and then try to sort of pivot them. And so at the moment, my biggest challenge is mushrooms. As in don't like them, not keen on them. Don't like them, trying to eat them. And that's because like I remember on weekends growing up, my stepdad would saute the mushrooms and they had a really strong flavour, strong smell, sorry. And then I associate that with the flavour. And so now I just am trying to be an adult and not be that person that's like, no, I don't eat mushrooms. It's my only dietary requirement. Not yet. Haven't found the way. Not yet. Yeah. <laughs> that navigating worlds in two different houses and some of that is what I like, what I don't like, and food can become the expression of that. What were other things that I guess that showed you or that taught you in terms of growing up, you know, shifting locations and shifting, you know, households have their kind of flavours or typical meals yeah. and I imagine that changed fairly regularly for you. 
Well, yeah, I imagine like that's when I first started shape-shifting, I suppose, my person into other people's environments. So I got very good at it and that's why I became very good at my job, which was to work with authors of all different, you know, expertise and varieties in the country and shape-shift your personality depending on what that person needed. I think I got very good at, at adapting and I got very good at reading moods and personalities and emotions, even ones that were like imperceptible. Like I could just have a really good sense of a room. And I think it's why I can kind of go into any sort of social setting now with relative ease. But still, you know, there's nothing easy about being hypervigilant and hyper aware of other people constantly. And that's something that's really hard to switch off. When you're on high alert all the time, it can be incredibly difficult. Yeah. And, it, you know, it's not that anything that anyone sort of asked me, but I did have two parents that had mental illness. And so I think it was just something kind of innate that I was just really conscious of other people. Was that something you had an awareness of the time or was it more just an experience of things were shifting and changing? Yeah. yeah, no, I mean, dad, um, certainly, I think mum, mum and dad, certainly, I should say, but dad was kind of the first most conscious one. And that was when I was about eight, he developed a drug addiction, and he, you know, had been depressed and a whole bunch of other things. And so mum kind of sat me down and, and brilliantly was so clear and so transparent in a way that I don't think maybe other parents are. But it was basically her saying, you know, you can't stay with him anymore and this is the reason why. And I think I really needed that because otherwise I think it would have been really hard to understand why I couldn't go and stay with him like I had. And with mum, they were so transparent. Mum has schizoaffective bipolar disorder and her and my pa, who's been there since I was two, was so clear about, you know, what was happening. And I mean, it was so obvious when mum was manic or off her medication because life was so much more colourful at those points. But, you know, they had moments where mum would go into a mental health inpatient clinic and so they needed to talk to us about why she wasn't going to be around for a a little while. What was that experience for you when you described life being more colourful? What Mm. was some of the richness that I guess you experienced as a child in those moments? I mean, mum only really gets mania. She doesn't get the depressive side. I think that changes a little bit as she's getting older, as bipolar often does. But she would at times think that she was Mary Magdalene and so she would wash our feet in kind of a ritualistic way and paint our toenails or she would, you know, be naked roaming around the house and sometimes want to leave the house. She would be evangelical about certain things. She would be... Yeah, it's when she's flourishing at her most creative, when her brain is kind of lit up with ideas, um, when she's manic like that, or certainly when she's off lithium, which is the drug that balances her out. You grew up in north coast of New South Wales, I understand, Mm. and moved to Sydney to pursue university and a career. What was that experience like, shifting away from home and, I guess, into the big smoke? Yeah, I think because my dad and his parents who I ended up staying with when I couldn't stay with him, they lived in Sydney. So I'd come here for school holidays and I just always knew I belonged in the city. Like I just craved being in the city. It didn't scare me. Like it's kind of scares my mum or like my grandparents have never been on a plane. Like I always knew that that's what I wanted to do and where I wanted to be. And so it felt like freeing to leave the country. I think too, because I didn't have my license. So I had a lot more freedom in the city. I could just jump on public transport and get to somewhere, but it just felt like a homecoming in a weird way. 
That's not to say I didn't get homesick because, my God, did I miss my family. And I remember sobbing for my mum when she left, when she helped me move down. But it definitely felt like this was where I was supposed to be. I wasn't supposed to be in a small country town. What was it about the city that pulled you? Oh, I think the atmosphere and the colour and the potential. But it's so funny now, like I'm entering my, gosh, 15th year of living here and I crave being in the country and I just like went away for two days down to like a really sleepy town on the south coast and then as I drove back into the city I could feel my anxieties levels rising. You know, it's so funny how you chop and change but yeah, I still love it though. I still love Sydney so much. Sometimes with that potential comes the weight of responsibility, right? Yes. Through, <laughs> Which does through, shift and change. Your book is a beautiful book, Heartbake, and Thank you call you. it a bittersweet memoir. How yeah. did you navigate the writing, the bittersweet part of it? Oh, it was hard. It was really hard. I mean, I, it was even harder because I sold an idea. I didn't sell written pages. Mm. So I kind of was writing after selling the book. And that was really hard. And it's not something I know that I'll do again, because it, I felt a lot of pressure. But it was, you know, it was such a process. I definitely wouldn't have called myself a writer before I started. I spent six months working on what is effectively a dating chapter, thinking that that was the book. And I was gifted with the guidance of an incredible publisher and an incredible structural editor who basically taught me how to write. But, you know, a lot of the time I would submit pages and I'd be like, great, yeah, I'm done, so good. They'd come back and they'd say, you know, Charlotte, you're giving all of these great indications into your childhood and how your personality is formed and why you're a people pleaser, but they're breadcrumbs and we need the loaf. So you have to go back. And so it was so therapeutic to go through that and to write that. There was a lot of healing that I didn't know I needed and didn't know I would get with the book, but it was such an incredible experience to write it and to breathe through that, I suppose. I can imagine the wrestle of going, but surely breadcrumbs is enough. Like, you know, like that's I know. It's like, what do you mean I have to go back and ask those questions to myself? Yeah. yeah. The depth of the writing comes through and can feel the sense that you've sat with those questions. So as a reader, I appreciate the effort and oh, the time and the heartache that you. goes into that. Yeah. You obviously navigate heartbreak And part of that is through telling the story of yourself and your husband. How did you and your husband come to be? I mean, we met, you know, totally pissed as you do at a pub one night. And I think for me, it was just falling in love for the first time. It was, you know, having someone woo me and take me out for dinner. And he was so charming and so beautiful and he loved food and I love food. And so it was like, oh, this is amazing. But like most things, you know, we met at 19 and I think when you meet that young, you either grow up together or you grow apart and unfortunately we did the latter. You described the ups and downs and the turbulence and it was over a period of time. The navigating those ups and downs, when you were in them, did you have a bit of a sense of, you know, I guess even in writing it, you know, the hardness of you know, that deep love, the first love that can kind of come from going, this isn't quite right, but surely we can figure this out. What did that mean to you writing that again? Yeah, it was hard. I think it's hindsight. It's a glorious but painful thing. And I just remember just thinking, you know, God, I wish I had listened to myself or like had let that little voice from inside just have a bit more of a roar than a mumble, you know, 
I think there were so many times when I just ignored myself and and focused on other people because I was too scared to actually ask myself what I wanted and what I needed. And so much of the book was doing just that, was saying like, hey, Charlotte, you've wanted to be seen and heard your whole life and now you're actually doing something that's going to let you be seen and heard. And for someone like my dad who wasn't in my life for a substantial period, like I could just give him the book, which I did before it came out and just said, there you go, buddy, like catch up on the last 20 years, 30 years. What was that moment like? Oh, profound. And it's not, you know, I don't expect there to be this big reunion and this making up for lost time or some big apology or some big acceptance on my part. It's actually just for me accepting that these people are who they are and you can't change someone. It's the same for thinking about my ex-husband, the same for thinking about, you know, an ex-boyfriend or my ex-best friend. Like you just have to accept sometimes that things are going to happen and they're not always going to be how you want them to go, but you can appreciate the moments that you did have. Within your marriage, control of money was one of the realities that you experienced. How did this show up yeah. for you? I suppose kind of before we got married, he he wanted to join bank accounts and so then it came to fruition once we did get married. It was, it was subtle and it was silent in a lot of ways because I was silent, I was complicit, you know, and so is as much as I believe that it was controlling and I believe that it was really, really unhealthy and toxic for both of us, it also was something that, you know, we both played a part in. Was there a moment when you realised the marriage was over? It's time. Yeah, and it was it was to do with the money and it was just realising that I couldn't do what I wanted to do or be who I wanted to be if I stayed. I was so scared of what that would end up looking like. And ultimately it was just that we both wanted different things. And I remember just having this moment of realising like I couldn't figure out who I was or what I wanted if I did stay. And part of that was looking in a mirror one day and, and not knowing who I was. So trying to navigate and find out who you are, you left and then Sydney went into lockdown. Yeah, it was a great time. <laughs> how did that go? <laughs> It was horrific. Like, there's no sugarcoating it. It was the most bleak, most desperate, most ugly time of my whole life. And, you know, the horrible part is that in leaving, I thought, you know, I'll go out with my friends and I'll distract myself. I'll be working heaps. It was just me, myself and I in this three-story terrace. I stopped eating. I drank too much. I, you know, would fire off abusive text messages. I would have just really horrible conversations with myself of just absolute self-hatred and toxic self-talk that, like, I would never do or, you know, and to have those moments of just being so desperate and so sad, just so terribly sad. I can only imagine how tough but how amplified that would have been where the other gates that might have kind of held you up in that time just weren't there. Yeah, there was nothing. There was nothing. And, you know, there was no one there to go, oh, wow, Charlotte's lost a lot of weight. Oh, that must mean she's not eating. Oh, I'll cook for her. Like there was no one there to to hold me accountable in that way. And ultimately I had to be that person for myself, but it took a really long time to get there. What were some of the first steps to start to make that shift? I think it was, you know, going out and introducing myself to my neighbours, like being a person of society and like a person of existence. They were my new neighbours. And so 
kind of saying to them, like, hi, I'm here and I will cook for you. Let me cook for you. Like, let me be needed. It was telling myself that I actually needed to eat if I wanted to sleep and I wanted my brain to not deteriorate into a state of disrepair. I actually had to feed it. And part of that was realising that I was someone that deserved to be fed. And I think that was really, really hard. And just realising that, like, yes, I had made the choices to get to that point, but I wasn't an awful person for doing that. That was probably the biggest. That's a big uh aha for sure to get to that. That I'm still worthy of food. I'm still worthy of being fed. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, like I think not enough people talk about how really bloody hard it can be to cook for one. Like... You've heard mums talk about it, like if their husband and kids go away and then it's just them at the house or them away on their own and they're cooking just for themselves, they don't know you know, what to do or how to do it. It's like one of the hardest things because I have no idea of portion sizes. Like my spatial awareness is horrific. And so I couldn't imagine just cooking for one. And then I also couldn't imagine like, well, what can I make myself? How can I comfort myself? What is that actually going to make me feel better? And so that was so much of a process too. So interesting. You actually went to what is my also single default, which is eggs. (laughs) And in that time, you described just having one egg a day, that that was your kind of nourishment. Was that the kind of start of that increasing the nourishment, the food for you? Yeah, because it was, you know, quite a long period of not eating and just starving myself. And I think that's just because I could control it and everything else felt so uncontrollable. Like what was happening with lockdown and what was happening with my, what was my husband, ex-husband doing, even though he wasn't my ex, but like, you know, you just go into those moments of wanting to control everything you can't control. And so that was the one thing I could. Then I remember telling my mum that I wasn't eating and I'd gone through the breakup because she was sick around the time I left. So I took a while to tell her. And I remember she just said something to me like, Charlie, you know, this is an elephant and you've got to take out bite-sized chunks to get through it. So just take one bite at a time, pick one thing. And so it was a hard boiled egg. But I mean, like the first time I made one, I remember just like it sitting on the bench, just staring at me so threateningly and to force myself to like not only pick it up, but to eat it and to chew and to swallow. Like the swallowing alone was one of the hardest things. And then to keep it down and to not feel nauseous because it was just such a process. And I haven't, you know, ever had disordered eating, but I've definitely always, my eating is always totally intertwined with how I'm feeling. So if I'm grieving, I'm not hungry. If I'm sad, I don't have an appetite. If I'm happy, my God, I can eat and not stop eating. It's such a funny thing how closely they're in time, but it's all vagus nerve, you know, it runs all through your body. We all have it, but how often we don't talk about it actually. And I think that's because there's a lot of shame around it too, which is a big reason for why I do try to talk about it and, you know, how like big foodie and this big advocate talking about starving themselves but it's like a food and feeling for me there's no separation of the two I can't divide them I can't no matter how hard I try and I suppose now you know in that heartache was boiled eggs in a different heartache it's been farmers union greek yogurt pouches and a slice of tasty cheese like it's just realising like what that bare minimum is and clinging to that because I know that it will pass. Do you feel like you've got that knowledge to fall back to if heartache comes again? I think, I mean, you know, I've had heartache recently. I think it's more so the knowledge that I will be okay and that I can hold myself and 
And, you know, in this latest breakup, I certainly didn't eat, but I didn't revert to drinking and I didn't revert to sleeping with strangers and I didn't revert to like toxic self-talk. So there's growth and there's learning, but I think we all have default coping mechanisms that we all kind of fall back on. It's just for me realising like it's okay and you're okay and you've got this. So just pick up the piece of cheese and eat it or, you know, do the, the do the first step, do the first piece. Yeah. Do the thing. And yeah. knowing what other resources are around or what other supports are right there at the time and that's why when you describe that first experience in lockdown when so much of that is not available or not around, that yeah. you can totally understand that amplification. Yeah. You talk about learning to allow other people to cook for you, so to feel nourished yeah. by the food of others, to feel cared for and it can be such an expression when someone is struggling or times are tough, that sharing of food, it has been for generations on generations. What has, I guess, allowing other people to cook for you, what has that shown you? What has that gifted you? Oh, it's been extraordinary. And and in recent heartbreak, you know, I had a friend live across the, a park and they'd bring me like buckets of chicken soup. And so that was like the one thing that I would eat. And I knew that I was caring for myself because it was made with so much love. And I was actively saying to myself, like, I love you, you're eating, it's okay. And so I suppose realizing that you're worthy of someone cooking for you because food is a love language to me. It's like the ultimate gesture that I could do for someone or that someone could do for me. I just adore it. I love that sense of who's making it and what their intention is going into it. Like it's the, the yeah. that experience of it goes into the flavour as you're nourishing as well. In your book, you talk about navigating and, as you say, the book started being about dating <laughs> and then needing to follow the other breadcrumbs. As you navigated dating after your marriage, you share some of those experiences and some of those stories Talk to me a little bit about what that was like and I guess putting yourself back out there after your marriage in that experience. I mean, I love love. I love love so much. So I kind of just was a hopeless romantic and believed in it. I think it was just for me, I didn't base my dating from a place of self-worth. I based it from a place of like feeling unlovable and and unworthy still. And so I was like, I will feel that by doing this for other people. And that was not the way to enter dating. It wasn't a healthy way to enter dating. But I definitely think I learned a lot about myself through dating. And that was also learning where like my boundaries and my limits were for someone that was pretty limitless and boundaryless with their love. And so I guess a lot of my self-worth came from realizing like where I needed to draw lines and that doesn't mean that in that moment I drew a line but that I could later go this is what you Mm. should have done so let's not do this now or let's not look at that in the next time and I guess a lot of that is what I call like a circuit breaker and so it's like the shortening between cause and effect for me really closed like it could take me sometimes before like a really long time to be like well that really hurt when they said that but then I wouldn't acknowledge the hurt until like way too late. Whereas now I can kind of in the moment go, oh, hang on a second. And that is, I think, a big process of what dating kind of led me to, to realise. was that just app. self-awareness, yeah, right? And I hadn't been on, yeah, and I hadn't been on apps before and I hadn't dated before. Like my ex-husband was the only person to ever take me out for dinner. Like it was such a whole back-to-back domino effect of first that, 
it was like I was in overwhelm, but I needed to slow down to really understand. One of the experiences that you share in the book was with a fellow that you called the fright. Tell me a little bit about that Mm. experience. Uh, He was someone who I met on a dating app and met in person. And at that point, probably like a year into me dating. And so the self-worth and the awareness had kind of come full circle and I realized I didn't have to sleep with people on a first date and I could just end it after a couple of drinks but after a couple of drinks when I did leave he messaged me kind of straight away and said that he loved me and what then resulted was someone who was clearly very unwell and I know that people have read the book and have gone like far out Charlotte like block this person and delete their number and delete them out of your life but I grew up with like parents with mental illness and to me when someone is threatening suicide, which he did, I don't see that as a time to just switch off and Mm. throw my phone away and bury my head in a pillow. And it's not like I was saying, I'm here for you and I'm going to help you through this. I was saying, you have people who love you that isn't someone you've just met for two hours. But it was, uh, you know, weeks of harassment and suicide threats and fear. I was just so afraid And it ultimately resulted in in him pretending to have committed suicide, which I just see as the most horrific thing someone can possibly do, but also because he knew about the history in my family. And and so for someone to do that was so manipulative and so calculated. And he did eventually stop and I have not heard from him, but it definitely terrified me. The intensity I can imagine would be overwhelming. What were the supports that you had around you or what helped you? I mean, I didn't tell anybody. And so, you know, I guess that's why in the book it's verbatim text message for text message because I wanted people, A, to realise the apps are a really scary place. Like I think so much of what I do write about in the book is all centred around shame and it's shame that I've felt. And I guess around that I had a lot of shame that I had found myself in that position or in that situation and and ultimately it's kind of like a learning for me that I can ask for help when I need help and so that's what I did I went to a friend and thought you know the only way this guy might possibly stop is if he realizes it's not just him and I in this weird kind of universe that he's created there's a third party and there are police and we will involve the police if we need to and and then he did stop shame is such a silencer in so many different areas and so these stories allow permission to find ways small or big to break some of those silences yeah and I think for me you know vulnerability is stems from shame I guess and a lot of people feel shame when other people are vulnerable around them and I think it's been interesting for me after the book has come out to have certain articles in the media run or have certain responses from people to articles, like I've been trolled for the first time. And a lot of that I've realised is people wanting me to feel shame that I just won't feel anymore. I felt that for a really long time and it's those instances where I go, like, you don't have to have shame around that. You can just ask for help. Talk to me a little bit about the book since it's been out. So it's been out since mid-May in 2023. Yeah. And these kind of experiences can create a life of their own. And there is a long time between the writing and the sharing and the unpacking and the healing for yourself and then it's in people's hands. What's that been like for you or what surprised you since the book has been out? I mean, I genuinely mean it when I would say like people were like, "Are are you worried? Are you anxious? I look at that like the perfect time capsule for exactly what I was seeking and feeling as of November 2022 when it went to the printers. Like 
I'm so proud of it and I'm so proud of myself for what it is and for who I was at that time. But I look now, you know, nine months on and I'm like, oh my God, you have grown and you have learned so much, girlfriend. (laughs) Which is a great feeling to have. I think it is genuinely something that you have to just say it's out of my hands now and how that is interpreted or how that is read is up to other people. And, you know, I saw one review once that said something like, oh, the ending was just so abrupt. Like, you know, she just didn't really really think that through and I was like you think it was abrupt like try being dumped like two weeks before your book goes to the printer and that was the ending of your book like I had two weeks to try to write that forever so (laughs) was there a tiny part of you going maybe that piece could be fictional and you could (laughs) (laughs) yeah I didn't I didn't want that ending you know I I again I love love but for me it is not mine anymore. And I genuinely mean that. It is everybody else's. And all I've ever wanted is to be seen and heard. And the fact that someone somewhere is feeling seen and heard because I have written what I've written is perhaps the greatest thing I'll ever do. Was there any preparation in that being seen and heard? I think there's real power in that desire of saying, look, here it is. And I've navigated and it's messy and it's imperfect and it is what it is. And I'm not apologising for it. And you can become misinterpreted, you can become, (laughs) people will pull out the thing that's meaningful for them but maybe wasn't what you had kind of put in there. How have you navigated that side of being seen and heard? Yeah. I mean, I have an extraordinary therapist who I call the Oracle, but I think a lot of it is she's been really great at separating like author Charlotte from Charlotte Charlotte and I guess a lot of it for me is turning that noise off and realising it's something I can't control. And I think control is is a big kind of thing that I guess we keep coming back to when I think about this conversation, but it's actually just about realising what I need and I know, like, I need to get into the ocean every single day, so I'm going to do that. It doesn't matter what's happening on Instagram. It doesn't matter what's happening with the amount of interviews or whatever I have to do that day. I just need to do that for me. Regulator. Love it. You know, it's, it's just knowing the non-negotiables for Charlotte Charlotte, not author Charlotte. And then author Charlotte will be fine because Charlotte Charlotte's really covered. You know what I mean? And you've got those as non-negotiables, such a perfect word to be able to say this is what's required Mm. in order to have the energy to turn up. Yeah. One of the things you have invested in is Supper Club. Tell me a little bit about what Supper Club is and what do you get out of it or what do those that come along get out of that experience? Yeah. So it started a year ago. And for me, it was about realising that I just want to connect people through food and I just want to create a safe space for people to be vulnerable. I don't think people feel safe being vulnerable a lot of the time. And I guess what I've realised in being vulnerable myself is it's like the single greatest thing you could do for you, but also for your relationships. And so I have a supper club at my house in Potts Point. I have an apartment with like a private rooftop in the middle of the city And it's individual diners, they're all strangers, nobody knows each other. It might be a fluke that they might know each other somehow, but they have to sit at opposite ends of the table if they do. And the purpose of it is to just connect. And for one night and one night only, you're going to sit and eat a four-course feast. It's all cooked by me, it's completely free, and they just come and be and be themselves, and that's all I could ask. What are some of the conversations or experiences that have emerged from Supper Club? 
I think the main takeaway is that, you know, you could be different ages. Like there'll be women that are 70, women that are in their 30s, in their 20s, in their 50s. You're completely different ages, completely different nationalities, completely different upbringings, and yet we're all so similar. And I ask the same question at the end of the mains for every dinner, and it's what your highlight and low light of the past year has been. And your low light might be, you know, so much in your mind, so much more insignificant than the persons beside you. But my answer to that is, but it's big for you. And so by talking about it, you're able to kind of have a bit of healing, I guess, but also realize that you're not alone. And I think a lot of us, I mean, I certainly did with my divorce and the pain that I was in in my marriage before I did leave. I didn't actually talk about what was going on because I didn't feel like my feelings were valid or that someone would take the time to listen. And I suppose this is my way of picking up that, you know, version of me and holding her whilst also holding other women to say like, it's okay and you've got this and it might be scary but just vocalising it makes a little bit of the weight be lifted. That's what I'm picturing as you describe that, this real kind of lifting, a lightness, lifting of weight that can happen yeah. by articulating, particularly for women, what we want so much. Yeah. We're told not it's just, to express that. Exactly. And it's just... I'm going to do a male-only one soon. I've been talking about it for ages, but things just keep getting in the way because I do think that men can be vulnerable and emotionally intelligent in a way that women can. I just think, like, if men were at the events with women, they would be really different and they would feel really different. There's something, which is not the right word, but it is, like, there's something kind of bigger than when we're all together and we're all in that moment and it's people talking about their partners that have passed away or health scares that they've had or fights with their best friends that they've had or challenges they're having at work like it's so universal and I guess that's kind of why I wrote Heartbreak too is like we are all so similar these are universal themes everyone has had loss at some point everyone has had a loss of self at some point everyone has memories around food you know they're very very universal themes they're really universal that sense of wanting to control but also realizing that there's so much that is outside of our control and how do we navigate back to ourselves uh, when everything feels like it's been up in the air and that collective experience even through lockdowns and COVIDs and even though three years ago there's still kind of a residual sense of the world feels a little bit Mm. out of control so how can we you know tap back into that in terms of that sense of you you talked about it before of you know reducing the lag expressing what you need or what you want Does that feel like it's got a louder voice for you than it's had previously? It's definitely a louder voice, but it's absolutely a work in progress. And I think, you know, there are moments when it will shrivel or shrink and go to a whisper and I just have to remind myself, it's okay, you you could speak. So it's, it's a total work in progress. And I think that's just retraining the brain on something that's been a lifetime of, of behavior and that cognitive kind of retraining is, is really hard. But it is a lot easier for me now, you know, in a recent breakup that's been really prolonged, being able to kind of advocate for myself and have agency. And I think that's not something I would have done before. And it's not to say I'm here being an aggressor all the time. Like I'm not trying to be that person that's like, hang on, hang on a second. I want to talk about my feelings, but I really want to talk about my feelings because I didn't for so long. And that's the situation I found myself in was divorced in COVID, you know. So I would rather skip the small talk. I would rather say the uncomfortable thing. It's not about having confrontation. It's about being vulnerable and being fearless enough to open yourself up no matter what the outcome might be. 
this book from an external experience, looking through Instagram, watching it, looks like it's been a full body launch in a lot of ways in terms of the promotion and getting it out. You've talked about a few things that are your non-negotiables. How do you continue to navigate your own energy and managing that with full-time work as well as kind of, again, that beautiful desire of kind of being heard and being seen and putting our voice out there. And I really wish more people did it, but it it can come at a cost at times. So how do you navigate that? Yeah. And that's a really brilliant question. You're the first person to actually ask that. The book tour was at a huge cost and I don't think I realised just how big a cost. It's meant that now kind of two months on I find myself being really averse to social settings and socialising. I found myself really wanting to go to ground and I think there was probably a part of me that had to disassociate and detach myself from myself in order to do that. You know, it was touring for two months straight whilst working full-time, sleeping one to two hours a night, not eating well or often, not exercising like I would, and then being in front of groups of 200 people who were all kind of wanting to share their story and, and felt like they knew you because they've read yours. It was really a privilege, but it, I don't think I realised just how taxing it was until I kind of stopped and was just absolutely discombobulated. That noticing and recognising the cost. Yeah. And giving permission to say no. Yeah, and I guess in saying that I probably wouldn't have done anything differently. I knew that, you know, from a career of working in this industry that you have one shot at a book launch and that's what you need to do. And it's often that people don't because they do have boundaries and do have limits. But I suppose for me... All I wanted was to be able to sit here today, which I can, and say, I know I gave that book my all and I know I can't sit here and say, oh, if only I didn't sleep in that day or if only I'd done that event, I can go, you know what, you did everything you possibly could. And there's a lot of peace in that. But there's also a lot for me right now of saying you can't do that again and you have to know your limit. Like there is a limit to your love for other people. There is a limit to your ability to keep going on fumes, there is a limit to your ability to not rest. And I suppose that's hard for someone who just has spent their whole life kind of running and in in chasing something. But I am trying to find beauty in in the moments of just stopping too. Sometimes it can be that recognition because that drive can come from the fear of, as you say, this is a limited period of time and I've got to give it all. And But that ability to go, I know I did and it's totally okay to kind of pause. Yeah, there's a lot of kind of peace in that. Yeah. There are suburbs, I understand, that have also run out of cream cheese as a result of your book. Oh my what was gosh. that like to hear that? I can't hear <laughs> I keep hearing this, which is hilarious. I mean, it's so satisfying and so wonderful, but also just so laughable to me that people are making my burnt bass cheesecake so much that there's cream cheese shortages in Queensland and like WA and all these different suburbs. But if, you know, if the one things that I can do is get people cooking and get people feeling like they're less alone, like I'm so happy my job is done, you know, I can sleep comfortably at night. So I'm not a cook at all and just is not in my DNA to really understand how food works, but I can attest to your chocolate brownies that I have made out of your book and they are extraordinary. Oh, yay. (laughs) Yeah, they're a good one. But interestingly, the ginger and I are seeing each other and I've been trying to make them for him again and I can't make them like I used to. It's like this weird, like I forgot the bicarb or I forgot the chocolate. 
I forgot. Like it's so hilarious. So like I need to make something. Ginger needs else another now. trademark, is what that is. Well, he's actually making me chocolate chip cookies. There it is. So that's a nice little pivot. Perfect. Yeah. Before yeah. I come to my final question for you, the egg is a symbol throughout this book. It's an image that sits on the front. It was the food that nourished you in those really tough times. And you talk about it being a symbol of new birth. What is it about the egg that I guess is one of the threads throughout this book? What does that mean for you? I think for me it's, it is a symbol of both my worst but best time. And it is the one thing I can look at and think, oh, my God, you're at rock bottom and look at you now. It's like a really tangible kind of item for that. The fact that, you know, eggs have such symbolism in Judaism and so many religions for being, you know, circles of life. And for me, it's about being that one thing that kept me going when I just wanted to die. Putting that as bluntly as I can, it was the one thing that kept me going. So to have a symbol of life kind of be that for me is amazing. I have it tattooed on my wrist actually, that. a little boil as well. But it is, I just look at that and it's like my one kind of North Star, which is such a bizarre thing to be saying about food, the ingredient, I suppose. But it is just that one thing that I'm like, there's such a blank base to make magic from. And I think that's indicative of every person. I've been thinking a lot. I recently had the privilege of being part of this on-country experience just here on the far north coast of New South Wales, one of the Indigenous guys was sharing one of their stories with us. But at the end he said, all of our stories have seven layers and I've just told you the first one. And sitting with that mm. and even where you talk about the egg, you kind of go, it's weird to be talking about a food item like this, but I feel like there's like a fifth or a sixth or a seventh yeah. layer that sits under it, which is really beautiful. Yeah, that's so beautiful. I love that. Thank you for putting your words into this book. It is a beautiful book and a call to the messiness and the okayness in amongst the shame and the unknown of life. The name of this podcast is called Standout Life. When you hear that term, what does it mean to you to live a standout life? I think for me, it's to do everything I can to find joy. And by that, I mean, I could have stayed in my marriage. I could have found a level of happiness, I could have found a level of being satiated, I guess, and just lived off of that. But I wanted more and I was hungry for more. And to me, being having a standout life is being hungry for more from life. And that for me is finding joy in life, in what I do, and in pushing and challenging myself to do that, to not rest on my laurels, I suppose, which does make it hard because I think there is also a part of me that just wants to be living a really simple, quiet existence with like being loved and loving someone. But until I have that, I'm going to do everything I can to just make the most out of it and make the most out of being alone. Keep wishing for more, striving for more. I'd sign Mm. up for that. Thank you so much, Charlotte. Yeah. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful. you've enjoyed this conversation then let's keep the conversation going the main place that i hang out is on instagram at ali hill a-l-i-h-i-l-l one of the ways you can continue to support me and the team behind the podcast is if you could take two minutes just to rate and review standout life podcast on whatever platform you are listening to you can also subscribe to the podcast so you'll be notified when new episodes come out and if this conversation is one that you know that someone in your world would get huge amount of value out of then please share share it with them or maybe share it on your socials. Once again, thanks so much for tuning in for your ongoing support 
and for joining me in exploring what does it really take. As always, this is Standout Life Podcast and I'm Ali Hill. 